Linux OTC. Welcome to episode 22. We're your hosts. I'm Bill. I'm Eric. That's it. That's all Just of us. us. That's it. That's all you get. <laughs> That's all you get. So it's, so. it's a budget episode. <laughs> but you know, the show, as they say, must go on. And I've heard that. I, yeah, I've, I've heard, heard other that. people say it. Uh, I guess it's true. I don't know. There's, I think, when I think about these things, I think about people on the road and that. Because, like uh, Dale CDL, friend of the show, um, also part of Mintcast, he's actually on the road right now. He lives in Ohio and he's on the road in Ohio on a weekend. That just sucks to know. He has a very interesting monthly kind of cadence with his schedule where he has to plan the pickup and then actually goes and gets it and has the whole, you know, scheduled. And I know you you guys can only drive so much per day and like all of that. So, um, but yeah, it's interesting to record the podcast, uh, Distro Hoppers Digest, with him because it's all usually based on his schedule and like when. The, the window of opportunity that we have yeah. while he's home and not involved with, you know, his his trucking career. And it's a demonstration in uh, the dismal state of uh, the internet in this country that, you know, he has to be in just the right locations in order to pick up. Because a lot of the truck stops have like a free Wi-Fi you can use or you could even pay a few bucks and get a little bit better Wi-Fi out in the parking lot. And it's... Oh, okay. Yeah, it... Like a hotel or something. Yeah, something like that. Except it's on poles out in the parking lot. And everybody and their brother is hooked up to it. And they... I can't imagine they do any kind of... um, Like load balancing. Yeah, or maintenance to Oh, (laughs) upgrades. (laughs) I mean, well, just, yeah, upgrades and simply reboot the doggone thing every now and then. You know, no, I imagine it just runs constantly you know and right right they probably don't have staff there that even understand how any of it works no so. not, not a chance if it's yeah. managed at all it's probably managed remotely somehow or another but so i'll tell you what though something that i find interesting is that that you and him both uh really do a great job of taking technology with you and incorporating it into not only the job you're doing and so using technology to I, I would assume, you know, just do the best you can in terms of traffic and routes and stuff like that, but also uh, just the things that you take with you and that you do have technology that you're using and doing things, albeit, like you said, without great internet. So it's, uh, but, a- but I do find it interesting that you've managed to, because I, I think about when I traveled and I would bring some things with me, but because I wasn't in a vehicle, <laughs> I had space. I had to be very selective about what I could take, but you guys tend to take more things. I've got two laptops with me usually, and then I just tether <laughs> it off my phone. There, there's a couple of tools that are just, I, I would not be able to do anything if not for uh, WireGuard and, uh, well, mostly WireGuard because that's that's the vehicle by which I SSH back into this network here. So if there's ever any problems with any of the websites or the next cloud server or anything like that, I'm able to SSH back in. But again, it depends. It's not, it's not likely you're going to run into a place that's so bad 
that you can't even get an SSH connection going, you know, but every now and then, you know, like uh, one one challenge I run into is when I'm editing shows on the road and I need to up upload that MP3 to archive.org. Oh, yeah. That can yeah. take like the last episode of Mintcast, for example, that took about an hour to upload the first episode. And I needed to get that done where I was at because I wasn't going to move again because you're right. We're, we're regulated in terms of how much we're allowed to drive. So once you get stopped for the day, you're kind of stuck there. And so Mm. I like to try to get those episodes released on Wednesday, meaning midnight, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, my time. And so I wasn't going to, if I didn't get it done there, it wouldn't have got done until later on in the day, Wednesday, which I suppose doesn't make a huge difference, but. Well, but if you don't know what the connections are going to be like, the next place you have to stop, you'd have to take advantage of it, even if it's not great where you are, right? Uh, Do you have a, is it a sleeper cab? So you're actually spending a lot of time in the truck itself? Yeah, I've got like a, oh, it's almost comparable to a small rv or something like that because okay. i've got okay you got the cab where you sit and the two the two seats up front and then there's like you can step you can get up right out of that chair and kind of step down into the living space where there's bunk beds the bottom bed is a proper twin size bed 40 by 80 oh okay and wow. then there's a top bunk that folds up and i won't i haven't used that in probably about four years but uh, it folds up, gets out of the way, and then I've got refrigerator um, down at the bottom, and then there's a cabinet where I open it up, and that's got my TV, my 22 inch TV that kind of articulates out, okay. and uh, a fold down desk. That's where I do the editing and all that. And on the other side, I've got like a little nightstand with a a closet behind that and a couple of drawers. Gotcha. Decent lighting and. Yeah, you have any kind I got, of heating and air conditioning and stuff? Or? Oh, yeah. Of course, a lot of people probably don't know. It, older trucks, you kind of had to lead the uh, motor running uh, around the clock to keep your heat and air conditioning going and your, uh, gotcha. and your electricity. Some trucks have 110 power or uh, regular household Mains power, level yeah. electricity mm-hmm. if it's equipped with uh, a voltage inverter. Uh, mine does not i've got one that it's like an aftermarket thing that just plugs into a cigarette lighter outlet and then i can plug my laptop into that okay uh lighting is is great i've got a there's little like personal lights all over the place but there's a uh two bulb fluorescent light in the ceiling and i think it's about 24 inches long by about i don't know six or eight inches wide and okay that just lights it up like the inside of the so, doctor's So it office. feels comfortable, like yeah, you're, you're not in like a cave or something. It's, it's, I mean, some of these trucks are ridiculous with the comfort. They make some Well, the are, size of some of the cab, yeah. the, the sleeper, I've seen it are like twice as big as the cab. And it's like, holy, what's going on in there? You know, the thing about those kind of trucks, you know, the more you do, the heavier the truck is going to be. And, you know, it's not just the amount of time that we're governed. It's the fuel. Uh, well, it's the weight, the total weight. Oh, we can only oh, right. be 80,000 pounds total gross weight, which means okay. that's less freight you can haul the heavier your truck is, and which hmm. re- translates to less money you make. 
I guess I didn't realize they included the truck in that yeah. gross vehicle weight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it makes it's sense the whole though. thing. And like, for example, with a regular van trailer, um, and we our trailers vary in weight to a certain degree, but uh, roughly the truck and the trailer empty is about 36,000 pounds. And we can gross 80,000 pounds total. So, I mean, that, that gives you an idea how much we're allowed to put in that box for freight, you know, and sometimes, sometimes you got to play a game with the fuel where you can't fill, fill your tanks all the way up because diesel fuel runs you about, uh, seven or eight pounds per gallon, which when you've got 300 gallon tanks, you know, that can add up real quick, but yeah, that's a good point. And in terms of like way stations and stuff like that, and are are they getting more sophisticated with that kind of stuff? Um, you, know, you know, I think they were, and because they've got some of the what we call super coops, where they've got like a big garage set up where they'll bring you in and inspect you and all that. They've mm-hmm. got some fancy technology where uh, you can drive through. They snap off a picture of you. And then they've got some infrared sensors that can, that are me- uh, measuring everything from the uh, temperature of the brake drums. Oh wow! Because they can sort of discern uh, the the effectiveness of your brakes. Um, if you're heavier, the brakes yeah. have to work harder. And if they're if they're over a certain temperature, then maybe they should have been replaced already or something like that. Or And then there's other sensors oh. out there that's measuring. Um, so safety stuff, too, though. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's, the weight is only a portion of, of the uh, regulation. We're, we're over-regulated in most people's I was opinions. just thinking, like, it's, a, it's incredible the amount of regulation. Yeah. There's a lot to learn for anybody that's coming out new, you know, in the job. And it can be really overwhelming. And I don't think people coming, like new people coming into the industry are making as much money as they probably should to Mm. uh, make up for that level of... uh, It sounds like you need to really put in a lot of time. It's not just sitting behind, you know, jumping in. I mean, obviously the act of learning how to drive that type of vehicle safely and, you know, backing up and making wide turns and all that sort of stuff. And then just general traffic safety. I've watched enough. Uh, One of my guilty pleasures is the uh, traffic videos on YouTube where it's either, you know, truckers or uh, just, you know, people driving like maniacs. But yeah, there's so many videos of like, people just don't pay attention to trucks. They don't realize like that gap that that a truck keeps in traffic is safety like that's the amount of space they need to slow down safely no and people that's, are like that's, no, just that's, a that's, spot that's just for you to slide right in <laughs> right like, right I've, exactly i've got two dash cams in the truck one of them is like wired up to the the system the company uses and that i've got no oh, access okay. to that video but then i've got my own below that i'm thinking about starting a uh on my other show three fat truckers i'm thinking about starting a segment on there called dash cam wednesday or something like that and hmm, okay and adding little dash cam videos and things that it, there there is behavior among regular drivers that is has turned out to be 100 percent predictable just the way people these days are 
handling certain, uh, you know, proliferated situations like passing and and mm. when people are in a hurry and the the most so you, disturbing. Can, you can spot this stuff yeah okay yeah and i can i've gotten to where i can really i mean anybody that's been out there a long time can kind of there's a lot of body language involved even though you can't actually see the entire person people project their body language through the vehicle in a Interesting. way it, okay. it, it is because there is a People will get when that when they're looking a certain way that you know they'll get the car closer to one side or the other. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I can tell if they're wanting to jump in front of me because they're trying. <laughs> they'll they'll try to match speed and then you know there there are little indicators that kind of lead you to know what this person's gonna try and do. the The latest most uh, disturbing trend that's been kind of I don't know coalescing into existence over the last 10 years as people passing on the right which oh uh, yeah well, um, i'll tell you what in florida they actually don't have a law against that you are allowed I, to pass on the there right. there really isn't a law per se against it it's um just a bad thing to do because you well, have I to mean, I, you've got about 13 feet of blind spot on mm, the passenger side i'm sitting eight feet in the air on the other side of the truck. Yeah. And yeah. so what I like to do, <laughs> I like to act like I don't see them. <laughs> and I, I like, because I want them to learn. You got to learn. Okay. <laughs> a little tough love for you. Yeah. yeah. A little tough love. I mean, I'm not going to run them over, but I want them to, for a second, believe that this guy does not know I'm here. <laughs> and if I can do that in an, in a controlled environment, you know safely right yeah of course i I don't you know it's arguable but (laughs) if i can do that in a controlled environment and teach somebody that oh my gosh maybe he can't see me you know maybe i better not do that ever again you know yeah yeah you know i kind of i kind of believe that maybe there's a positive outcome to be had there but you know i it's by and large i feel like in terms of driving awareness and safety that i would say truckers are probably you know because it's their profession and because there's such harsh penalties for having wrecks and things like that that you know you guys are more aware in general like you're saying you know just making a study of traffic patterns and behaviors and and anticipating things and that's really i would assume the biggest thing is being defensive and anticipating that hey that guy looks like he's really not paying attention or maybe he's on his phone or you know or or is in a hurry i mean i get so much of that i i so i know this is going to be laughable but i drive a lot for my medical appointments and last month i drove 1100 miles or 34 hours just for medical stuff and i mean again i know in the grand scheme of like driving that's nothing but for me that's you know that's six hours a week uh you know many times a day kind of or many hours many miles covered during that time and it's always at highway speeds going usually between 70 and 90 miles an hour and people don't think about physics what's going to happen to your body if you have to stop Suddenly, or if you hit something at that speed, yes, your car has airbags and analog brakes and skid control and all that stuff, all those safety features, but speed overcome and physics will overcome all those things because the only thing that's really, you know, holding you to the road surface is a few square inches of rubber 
And, you know, people just don't think about it. And it's amazing to see how callous and brash people are with just cutting in and out and, you know, not paying attention, looking at your phone. I mean, it's just, it, it really is staggering to me because they don't think that in that instant that they're not paying attention and something could happen. And that's, that's maybe going to mean their life or at least such physical damage that they're never going to be the same. And it just, I, I mean, I guess I just don't understand. There's so much confidence in this. Like you think about Tesla's autopilot and, you know, this is a, that's just the, the tip of the spear. You're going to start seeing more and more of these technologies and people paying less and less attention, being distracted more by their phones and all of that. I'm sure you've seen that. The, the technology is, I'll get to that in a minute. The technology in the trucks, I don't have any of this stuff, but the, uh, like fleet trucks where you've got a company that's operating several thousand trucks, they've got collision mitigation technology in these trucks mm. and it's really it it is really um it's really in control of the truck to a large degree as far as now yeah you brought up you know kind of taking the driving seriously now i've gotten to where i you know i i spoke a little bit about how i can kind of predict when somebody's going to do something stupid, but I can also, it's also evident when somebody takes their driving seriously too. And you do see those people, they've got certain behaviors that are, that are indicative of that idea just because they, those kind of people tend to uh, keep it straight going down the road. They always seem to have those sunshades in their car that they can put up <laughs> on the dashboard behind yeah, their yeah, windshield yeah. whenever That's they stop funny. somewhere <laughs> and then, you know and th there's behaviors that that go along with that um <laughs> well i i don't mean to like sound like it's uh, i there's no other better way to say it and not sound like a little egotistical but like i take it very seriously i always have uh and and i also am a very courteous driver and i think it drives other people crazy that i am perfectly happy to go a little bit slower so that people can merge. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, if everyone just realized that if you slowed down a little, added a little space in between and let other people merge, that everyone goes faster. We all, we don't have to run up and slam on our brakes and then we all slow down. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I've met a dead stop on a major highway where everybody else is going, you know, between 70 and 90 miles an hour. And I think I'm going to get completely slammed from behind and there's nothing i can do because someone's not paying attention like it's just it's a bad situation all around but anyway like you know i let people merge i'm very cognizant of truckers and and trucks and i always let you know i anticipate things coming up if there's an on-ramp coming up and there's a truck in the right lane and there's and that end is just an on it's just an on-ramp it's not an, an extra lane uh, i know that someone's probably going to come in and cut them off and so the truck's going to have to swing over. And so I, I back off and I give them enough room to do that. Or if I'm in the middle lane, then I get in the left lane and give them a lane. Like you just, you have to pay attention to do those things. And I think that's the problem is that a lot of people just, A, never learn it to begin with because I think the driving education is pathetic. And two, that they uh, just aren't paying attention. So they're not thinking ahead, like, well, the d dynamics of traffic flow and like, what do I need to do to get in the place where I need to be? And 
this is going to be really boring to listen to, but <laughs> I, I'm sure I, somebody's going to complain. Well, you, you didn't say anything about Linux at all. <laughs> you know, it's well, no, that's, and like I want to actually started the conversation to get to that because I was saying that, you know, I, I was impressed that Dale and yourself are out on the road and you're away from home yet. You still find ways to use technology. And I actually, the, the, what I was getting to was how has Linux transform the way that you either oh. do your job or the you know maybe what you do after you're doing your job or you know i don't think things. i could take windows on the road frankly okay. because you start up windows and it especially you know newer versions of windows tries to you know contact the mothership you know every time you start it up and in a in a situation where you've got maybe dsl speed at best maybe a little bit more i mean your your upload your bandwidth speed varies so dramatically that you know you just are not going to know what you got until you go and you try it and if you got a machine that's going to and the other thing you're like these phones i'm i think i've got a 10 gigabyte data cap for the tethering and that's a hard limit. After that, it goes to like 2G speed, and that's that's unusable wow. period for most things nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. with Linux, I can make sure, and I got Arch running on both of these machines, by the way. You do? Ooh. Yeah. Um, And I can make sure, I know how to make sure with Arch that there is absolutely nothing doing anything as far as networking until I tell it to or until i go and open up a website or run a command that reaches out somewhere and so it's not bleeding through and eating up bandwidth with background I mean, activity and stuff yeah it doesn't even i the whole reason i went with arch is so that i could have that that low level of control because um i mean even like mint or something like that you start it up and it will try to run uh, unattended upgrades and things like that. I know yeah, you can disable yeah. all that. You can get rid of it, you know, but what? That's chatty though. You're right. It, it is yeah. a lot of better background activity. If you so, do something like a um, pie hole, it's amazing to see the amount of chatter that happens on your network. I've you got, know? I'm running pie hole and I think I've only got two machines, this machine and my phone and maybe the laptops when I'm running those at home. And just that, the, just those few machines alone, uh, the amount of uh, DNS and qu uh, queries that come through, it is yeah. it is kind of overwhelming. It's eye-opening <laughs> to a large degree. Yeah. The amount of info that's trying to be gathered on the users. Even you know. just pinging. The one that I hadn't realized before is in Network Manager, by default, there's a... Um, activity or a, a connectivity check mm. and it's so it's reaching out to an ubuntu or a, a canonical server and so i had piehole set up and i hadn't realized and, and this is actually recently that i made this discovery there's a way to actually just go in and turn it off so that it doesn't do it but if you don't it is and i understand these little network pings like it's not a lot of bandwidth but it is overhead and there's just a lot of that junk happening that you don't no, and you know you mentioned just a couple devices, but if you've got a pie hole running for your whole whole home, you've got you know maybe entertainment devices. My Roku is very very chatty. Um, 
<laughs> there's just there's so many of those things and and it's amazing in a day's time tens of thousands of of actions blocked or, or connections blocked that are just junk they don't need to be happening but these companies it's it's this same mentality that allows a company to gather more data than they need on their customers and then store it away in a database just to be breached at some future date but it, it just doesn't need to be the way it is but because Nobody really understands it. Nobody says, well, why is it doing that? You know, or there's no backlash because of it. They just do it and figure no one cares. And, uh, and yes, it is true that most people have a robust enough connection now that, you know, they don't see a, a negative downside from it. But anyway, so that's a great example of, you know, you're using Arch. Oh, by the way, Arch in the same sentence, but which, how do you, what do you do for Arch? The vanilla installer or do you use a distro? Oh, since they've uh, come out with that Arch install thing, I've stopped. I still know how to do it, the the old fashioned way of installing it. Sure, sure, sure. It was never that hard to begin with. I mean, honestly. Well, they did away. You had to follow instructions, you know. And once you understood what those instructions were, they're fine. Now, there's there's beginner guides out there. There used to be a beginner guide, and that's been at least six, seven years ago now. There used to be a beginner guide on the Arch Wiki that yeah. really went into yep. detail about every little thing and what I you're going to see. And, what, and they did away with that because they said it's because there's beginner guides out there and... Um, it was oh, I never knew why bit. they got rid of it. Yeah, I just noticed that it was gone whenever I went to look for it one time. I've got yeah. an opinion about why they got rid of it. I think you do. They were getting an uptick of new users, and oh. I'm sorry, I've been an Arch user for 15 years, and I can tell you, and somebody might write in and and fight me on this. I'm I am ready to I'm ready to go to war over this. I will die on this hill. <laughs> Those people are perhaps not the, you know, the the developers and things, but the people that are part of the Arch community are extremely uh, elitist, even more so than the Gen 2 people, I've noticed, for crying out loud. Yeah. Um, they're, they're very elitist, and they don't, they will, if, if you ask a question on the Arch forum, you are more likely to get ridiculed for the manner in which you asked the question because you're supposed to know exactly how to ask these questions right. and use the language that right, you know right. properly describes all these things and <laughs> i'm not going to answer you because you didn't do it right <laughs> you're not holding it correctly yeah and and yeah. i'm you know i see that all the time i don't even get on there anymore unless i've got something really really out there that i'm trying to accomplish and well and 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 you do know that they what the expectation is and so you probably have done all the research and everything well i mean i've been burned uh, over the years (laughs) enough times to where i mean it and i've gotten into it with some of these people and there's just no knocking them off of their holy little mountain i'm sorry that that's just been my (laughs) experience with the with the average not the average arch user i would say i I, right I, i think it'd be like the average person that sits on the arch forums because they believe themselves to be such a fountain of knowledge with arch linux (laughs) that you know they just the community just wouldn't be able to stand without them you know that oh yeah 
Yeah. So you you get this uptick of new users, and they don't like dealing with new people that don't know how to talk Arch. Yeah. So they try to put roadblocks in place. That's why I was really surprised when they came out with the Arch install uh, tool. I, because I, I, I think there's probably enough reasonable people that said, look, you know, look at the success of the these third-party distributions that are essentially glorified installers. I mean, I, I don't mean this in a in a negative way. Uh, Endeavor OS is a great example of it's one that I've followed Absolutely. from the beginning. I'm I'm friendly with the developers. Uh, I, it is it is the easy mode for installing stuff, and also some of the utilities they include make it easy to set up your mirrors and stuff like this. The basic stuff that you need to do to get going, right? They don't make a lot of decisions for you, but I think there's probably some resentment of those. And I know there's like, well, you're not really running Arch if you're using that. Well, I am. Um, it doesn't change. It's not like Manjaro where you're actually running. You are technically running Arch, but it's a, in a very controlled, measured way that uh, you could definitely argue, okay, this isn't mainline Arch kind it, of thing. It, it is controlled, but you still run into, even with Manjaro, you're going to run into some the same sort of Arch-centric problems where right. you might install a piece of software that has an associative uh, system D service. And you need to know what that service is and you need to know that you have to enable and start that service on your own. And so, there is software out there that's got multiple system D services that need to be started. And and if they don't get started, they don't work. And if you don't know that, you don't know that. So you install a piece of software and it doesn't work. And then you're like, well, this thing didn't work. And of course, you know, the documentation is great. But you're going to need that documentation in order to get that stuff working. So even with Manjaro, you're going to run into some of that stuff. And I'm sure there's a way. I'm, I just have never, I don't know why, I've never looked for something in the AUR, like a Pac-Man hook that will enable every system D service or timer or or whatever. Without that you it, needing to remember to do it. <laughs> yeah. You're not, you don't just need to remember that it needs done. You need to know what they are so you yeah. either have to go and cat that the uh, yeah. where it's all stored and find out which ones are sitting there and need to be running or you need to be looking at the documentation it, it's easy to argue against the the arch way of doing it where it's you know additive uh, yeah. what you know that that's that's what you know it's what you want right it's the whole right. point if you've educated yourself enough and you understand the different offerings the different distributions and the methodologies behind them the principles and all of that and you you will favor arch if you like you said want that low level sort of granular control that you understand your system what it's doing because you're the one that put those things in place and manage them i've become a little disillusioned i, I was a huge arch user for many many years um i literally just you know and <clears throat> i think a big part of it and I just watched the Infinity Galactic video this morning about uh, package systems. He talks about the difference between Flatpak, Snap, and App Image, and uh, oh, yeah. those have definitely changed the way that I use distributions. Arch was such a treasure for such a long time because it was the one that was always the rolling distro. That uh, you know, there are other rolling distros, but Arch was always the one that I think that appealed to me the most, and I loved that sort of cutting edge, up to date. Um, 
you know, especially when I was into constantly messing with my system, like when I was never happy with just leaving it alone for more than two days at a time and just had to change something. Uh, Arch was fantastic for that because I had so much control. I didn't have to undo things to do other things. And, um, but you know, recently it's funny, I, I have tried using it and that same flexibility I feel like has gotten more, it's made it so much more difficult to use than something like, a, you know, a stable, boring system with Flatpak, for example, where I can just get all of the up-to-date software. So the, the whole point of running a rolling release is kind of not there anymore. Like the, the reason for going through all of that, unless I want to have that low-level control and, and do something on the system level, if I'm just talking about needing up-to-date applications, then that's why I'm using Linux Mint because it's just stable. It doesn't do anything except run basically security updates. Um, and I can use Flatpak and app images and get the stuff I want. And honestly, it's also more difficult to run Arch in a lot of cases because the software I run that isn't a Flatpak is usually available as a deb or an RPM file. And yes, there's the AUR. And I agree that the AUR is brilliant where the package is well-supported and popular, but there are so many sort of smaller you know, packages and, and pieces of software that are on the AUR that are great for six months and then languish. And you're like, well, what am I supposed to do now uh, outside of you know, trying to figure out how to package it myself or something like that? It, it really does make it more difficult. So the last few times I've tried to use it, I've, I've actually found that, you know, just using Fedora or, you know, Mint, Debian, Ubuntu, just it's easier. And, and it, this goes sort of leads me into a conversation we started yesterday. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance to respond and then we well, can, we can crack that nut a little bit if you want. Right on. Um, I think that's fair criticism. I, well, okay. I think we're going to get to a point where, um, you're going to be able to install everything with flat pack and app image and to a lesser degree snap and have the same sort of expectation that you, uh, that you might have if you're able to install a piece of software uh, natively with the package manager. Right now, I just don't think we're there yet uh, because we're kind of all over the place in terms of the level of interoperability some of these flat packs and, and things yeah. have with the, the uh, um, operating system. Some of this stuff is, you know, kind of superficial. Like, for example, the Audacity. If you go and get Audacity and you run the app image straight from the uh, website, which is what I run, um, you get a very basic Windows 95 looking theme because it just, it cannot communicate with uh, Mint's themes or whatever and mm -hmm. i don't even know mm -hmm. what the mechanism an app image is that does that um the flat pack does integrate with the uh theme and it seems to be working okay now these things kind of sometimes they're managed by the uh upstream development team sometimes they're not that's the thing about this that it's kind of all over the place yeah but yeah at the same time the aur is maintained by the community that's using Arch Linux uh, and 
you know, if so if you create an AUR package and it's not a package, it's basically a script that mm-hmm. tells the system, you know, go and get these dependencies. Well, sometimes these tool these tool chains will will change right out from under the AUR, the package that's actually getting installed from the AUR. And that will cause things to break. And it's not immediately clear if you're not used to using uh, Arch and the nuances that go along with that, that you need to, yeah, no, the package is not outdated, but you still need to rebuild it because the tool chain moved out from under it. So you have to, you know, all the, you know, dynamic linkers and all that need to be redone and, and, all of that stuff, but I being comfortable or being having accepted that level of jank, if you will, with the AUR, <laughs> I think kind of made it a little bit easier for me to start using flat packs and and app images. Now, snaps is a, is a completely different problem altogether. Snaps is maintained by one company. And that company has its operating system that it it is beholden to. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that snaps is basically a product that needs to work on that. And if you get it working on other on other versions of Linux, other distributions, great. But some of these snaps, because of how um, how much they went out and and pitched this whole snap thing to all of these different projects out there and convinced all these people they need to make a snap and all that and you know you had them at first but then like most things people kind of they don't really see the value in it so they kind of let it slide to the side and now you've got snaps that haven't been updated in a couple of years now and that's the unfortunate that's the unfortunate thing that can happen with this i think in flat packs case they're probably the most likely to be able to um be effective for most users of other well any uh Linux distro I still I'm I'm just not to the point yet because there's just so many things like like a, a browser for example um from what I understand it, it the browser still cannot connect to a samba server uh from a flat pack or an app image and I think that's part of the reason there's there's just some challenges that we're just not at the place where we can get over them yet and I think that's why Mozilla is choosing to at long last make this PPA that's got devs in it you know which was an interesting thing uh that was an interesting development I think that after all of this yeah. plugging away at the universal package systems they well that, they so that's making... always been a a bit of a challenge for developers is they want as short a distance between their release process and release cycle and the end user as they can achieve without needing to go through a bunch of hurdles uh to get through that to get to the user so you know if i'm running a piece of software and there's an update and this is an advantage in some cases of running something like Windows and Mac is that piece of software can tell me, hey, there's an updated version, go download it. Um, Or if you happen to be using a package manager um, that is keeping up with those, then you you get an up-to-date piece of software. If you're running a long-term support version of a Linux distro, then you're sort of stuck with the system package being an older 
albeit probably more stable version of something. If you don't really care about the latest developments in something, then you're perfectly fine with that. Uh, I, <laughs> I tend to want the newest stuff just because I read about the updates and it's like, oh, I want to try that out. So that's why package systems, you know, flat packs and app images and stuff like that have really, and, I, and lately I've actually been looking at homebrew. I needed to use that to get Hugo, which is a web development, a web tool uh, to develop websites. And the only w ways to get it were through Snap or Homebrew. <laughs> and I said, well, you, there was a manual way, but it, it was way more complicated than I wanted to undertake. And so... What, I like thought, a curl okay, well, to bash is... kind of thing? Well, no, no, it was actually more than that. You had to like set up all of the prerequisites and it was oh. there was dependencies and just different things. It was messy. Uh, which is, you know, it, it's a great argument for these third-party package systems like Flatpak and even Snap, the fact that it contains things. Um, I agree with you. There's complications. I, there are oftentimes so – I, I, there are categories of applications, some of which work very, very well in a containerized setup, you know, like a Flatpak or a Snap or something like that. And some of them, like you're saying, a browser – Traditionally, that are so used to having that low-level system integration that whenever you don't have it, the assumptions there that it's there that they that it does have it, and when it doesn't, you just run into you know issues that it isn't going to work the way that you expect it to. I've had that happen a lot with snaps in particular, and that's one of the reasons that I don't like them. Performance and inter integration in terms of like visual styling and stuff like that is still not perfect, uh, but I would argue there's some flat packs that are the same way. It really comes down to interoperability and access to the system. I feel like Flatpak, I'm able to override those things that you're mentioning, like not having access to network shares and things like that. Or uh, I run a set setup where my all of my data, my personal folders, documents and music and videos and all that are not actually on in my home folder. I'm using... Uh, links, soft links to a different partition or a different drive altogether. And uh, in Flatpak, you have to actually, in a lot of cases, override the default security settings or the default settings that come with it so that it has access to a specific drive. So all I do is I go into FlatSeal, which is a utility that lets you adjust the permissions of Flatpaks. And I go to the particular Flatpak and I just, under the option for drives, I just enter a path that it has access to, which is that external drive. And yes, that breaks the security model or whatever, but that it needs access to that data to, to function properly. So that's what I do. Um, but there are things that just don't work in those systems. And so that's where a native package really comes into play. But there's something else that I started looking at and started using because of being interested in immutable distros and atomic distros, which is DistroBox. And it's kind of like a third-party package system, except that you're getting a virtualized distribution environment. So you're getting a whole like sort of version of Ubuntu or Fedora or Arch or whatever system you want to create with DistroBox. And then within, distri within that container, you can install anything you like. And because it's a fully virtualized environment, it has low-level access to that environment's internals, if you will, and it can run things 
in a more low level way than something like a flat pack and a snap can in some cases. So it's interesting. I've it's messy at times because I've got app images, I've got flat packs, I've got homebrew now. Uh, I have DistroBox in some cases. So I've got all these different things, plus native packages, right? And <laughs> so a lot of times I have to think, okay, what what's the source of this thing and how do I deal with it? But the, the beauty of that is the ability to be so flexible that I can do all these things, right? I have access to all this software through all these different channels and I can choose like, this is the best way for my situation to run this piece of software. And that's an incredible capability that is, I, I mean, I know from a developer's perspective, they see that. And that's one of the reasons that Linux has become so popular for development is the flexibility, all the containerized aspects of things, being able to basically have your cloud workflow on your desktop because it's a like for like situation. Uh, even Windows having WSL now, you know, and I don't know if you've ever tried that, but it, it actually does really bring Linux in a big way into Windows. It does, is- and now that now that they've got uh, graphical application support on WSL, you know, some people, it worried some people. I remember the conversation, well, you know, fewer people are going to use Linux. No, people use Linux because they want to use Linux. It's got nothing to <laughs> well, do with Well, what is Linux? Yeah. I mean, if, if the expectation is that people are using desktop Linux or it's the year of desktop Linux or whatever, you know, all of those sort of tropes and memes, I, I don't see the, that's not necessarily the value in my opinion. And funny enough, like where I started with Linux was exactly, I think, the way that some people are starting today, which is I was in a Windows and an, actually at that point, a DOS environment. Thank you, DOS 622. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> I needed to do things that there weren't DOS utilities to do. Like I needed to, you know, search within the the body of text files and log files to find certain events and keywords and things and extract those out or look inside of documents and, and find, and this was medical stuff. So it was a lot of like sections of a document. I needed to find that section and then find the information that was part of that section. And wouldn't you know it, when I searched around and started looking for ways to do that, all of these interesting Linux utilities started popping up, like the ability to, you know, do exactly that, like spool a file, open it, pull out the information, and then do that as in a batched way, right? In a, in a, um, in a way that I can control. It, it was just, it was a revelation after being sort of handcuffed with what I could do in DOS to find these Linux utilities that let me do, I'm, I'm struggling to think of the exact one that was the first one, um, but so many of them. And at that point I found Sigwin or Sigwin that had yeah. you know some of those utilities. And, and that, that led me to Linux server, which was sort of the next revelation of like, wow, there's this amazingly powerful system that I can run file servers and web servers and all this stuff that, and they run so much better on like hardware that won't even support Windows, <laughs> let alone, you know, be performant with it. Um, because I had been shackled with IIS for Internet Information Server for a long time, which is Windows version of a, of a web server, which is just hateful. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, to find these tools. And then that eventually led me to desktop Linux. It took me years, actually, between finding the utilities, the server, and then actually jumping onto a desktop. Um, But I don't see any downside or negative to Windows having WSL because I think it gives people exactly that. It, It lets them figure out the right way to fix a, or solve a problem, come up with a solution. And that's really what IT people are faced with. A lot of times they're in a situation where there's a request for them to make something work magically with pixie dust because nobody understands what IT people actually do or how technology works. And so you have to be self-sufficient and, and understand like what's my you know, what's available to me. They're not going to give me tens of thousands of dollars to go out and buy licenses for stuff usually. No. So like, how do I figure this out? And, uh, and yeah, so that was my path. And I have to assume that WSL or just, you know, exposure to Linux on servers or all of these sort of cloud native tool sets well, and things that. I got a hot take on that actually. Okay. Because there's a lot of tools. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of applications that, yeah, uh, you can get on Windows. They've been ported over, but the mechanisms by which you get them, or uh, they're either kept up to date, or um, it's not always, it's not always obvious where to go and get on the Windows side, and it's not. It doesn't always seem like a safe thing to do. The biggest example I can think of is FileZilla, which is a utility that you can use to move files back and forth between FTP and and SSH servers. And I use it a lot, and I needed it to work on uh, Linux and Windows. Well, on Linux, of course, you know, you've got all of the ways to install FileZilla. Well, on Windows... Prior to the Windows Store, and I'm not even 100% sure if it's on the Windows Store, but leaving that aside, you can go to the FileZilla website, and it links to SourceForge, where this package is uh, hosted for the Windows side. And when you download it and you try to install it, the installer uses about four separate uh, methods to try to sneak the stupid little... um, malware software onto your machine like the toolbars for uh edge and the little oh i don't know malware scanner <laughs> they use they use different it's so methods it's silly to even think about this stuff because you just don't ever you just don't even see it on linux right you When's don't the last and time that's... anything you've dealt with in linux tried to install a toolbar in your browser like oh, oh. do you remember when people you would somebody would say oh. man my computer is just running like crap and you do go you, to their house so there was a yahoo one there was oh. an msn one there was there were like six of them and i remember i would remote into someone's system to try to help them and they had they they had this much room in their browser because it was all toolbars yeah. At the top. Exactly. And I'm like, don't you see that? Oh, well, I just thought it was supposed to be there. I'm like, oh, what? And they know that. That's why when you go and you install, they were counting. Uh. And this is an open source project. <laughs> and I, I don't think it's the project that did this. I think it was, you know, they needed file. They needed a hosting service to distribute this out on a Windows. A lot of third parties will pull those executables and actually bundle them yeah. into an installer that does that. Yeah. 
So the FileZilla, and I, I invite anybody to go out and get FileZilla for Windows and install it just for fun to see what I'm talking about here because it'll present you with a series of, you know, click yes, 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 yes boxes like we're used to on Windows. And the first one will try to install something by putting the install button where the yes button is, okay? Mm -hmm. the, second oh, yeah. one, the second one... You have to hit the yes button, but they put a tick box over here, and they've got it ticked. Yes, install this stupid thing by default. <laughs> That's the second one. Then it'll give you one where you're already done, but it's giving you a, a dialog box with yes, install this stupid thing, when in actuality what you need to do is hit no thanks and click that, and it goes yeah. away because your program is yeah. already installed. So it uses several different methods to try to sneak stupid crap on your machine and that's what i'm talking about with wsl you no longer have to worry about okay i need like filezilla i can literally just go apt if i've got the uh ubuntu uh, mm -hmm. wsl i can just apt install filezilla and there it is you know the the regular way with no stupid crap coming along with it because it doesn't it makes it feel like you're not even getting an actual version of this software that is right. endorsed by the development the original development team but that yeah <laughs> i keep thinking about now, that imagine, whenever i think of wsl imagine being in it and having someone either show you that or discovering that uh you know maybe you follow a podcast or something and someone mentions it and all of a sudden it's like the doors open and, you know, that's sort of how I felt 20 years ago, um, you know, whenever I sort of made that discovery, which at that point, it wasn't as sort of out there as it is today. I think people might have an easier time of discovering this, these things now, at least people who are in that industry or whatever. But yeah, that's an interesting uh, juxtaposition or, or comparison of like the difference between getting software on a proprietary system and well, so if you use Chocolatey, like, again, like you said, if you use WSL or if you use Chocolatey, there's different ways to sort of circumvent the traditional channels of software distribution. And they make using those systems much less painful. Uh, just Chocolatey itself was a sort of a revelation for me on Windows because it it's a package manager and it lets you install those soft pieces of software. But then the, the major important part for me is I can just run an update from the command line and it will just check and see all of those things that are out of date and will update them, which is the beauty of a package manager is, and the thing that drives me crazy about using something like windows or Mac is that it's all consolidated and it's in one place and it's so easy to manage versus needing to, you know, and it's in a lot of cases, yes, even if the application has an update manager or an update, you know, notification in it, it just breaks your stride. It breaks your workflow. Like you're ready to jump in, you know, and start using, you know, I used FileZilla for a long time. I end up just using the, the, uh, file manager now to do SFTP and stuff like that. But, uh, but I agree with you, you'd open notepad plus plus or so, you know, whatever software you're using. And it says there's an update and yes, you can ignore it. But if you're like me, <laughs> you can't ignore it. So nope, you, know, you have can't to either. let it update. Um, Cause you know, you never know. And so, 
yeah and it would just it would just break your train of thought or it would break your stride or whatever and it was just it was obnoxious where i feel like that's just doesn't happen to me i mean except on app it, image that's the one place where we've kind of gone backwards as far as the update mechanism goes and i'm not sure if it's the same with all software yeah. well i use app image launcher and that tends to handle it a little better where it will kind of update in the back. It'll download okay, in the background. Yeah. And then whenever you go to start it again, it'll actually say, do you want to run or install? So it handles it a little bit differently, but I, I agree with you. App image is sort of like the odd duck still. And, but I do find, you know, so part of IG's um, video that I watched earlier today was that, you know, app images don't integrate as tightly into the system. That's absolutely true. If you're using app image launcher, it at least will create, you know, the, the entry in your menu or your launcher system so that you can just call, call it up without needing to browse to the file to open it uh, or needing to create your own desktop file. So that's, that's the advantage of app image launcher and, and just being able to uninstall or, you know, update whatever. But some uh, developers have chosen to use app image. Like I really enjoy Joplin as a note-taking app and their preferred method of distributing software on Linux is app image. Now you can, there is a flat pack version, which isn't, uh, you know, like you said, there's a lot of stuff in there that's third party people packaging it and not, and it's maintained, supported, but yeah, yeah. It doesn't it's necessarily mean that it doesn't work just as good. It just means exactly. that it's not exactly. the original developer. I've, I found that some of the theming stuff doesn't tend to work. For some reason, I don't know why, that particular software uses some weird combination of like cute and I don't I don't know. But And it's, it just doesn't look right to me in uh, the flat pack. So I run the app image version. It runs fine. Yes, you know, updates, but I, I also am subscribed to their GitHub notifications, so I know when there's a new version if I need to get it. Um, anyway, yeah, I, it it is amazing to see the proliferation of, you know, me methods to, you know, gather all this software. And I don't know, if you're like me, I'm a collector. Like, I tend to hear about something on a podcast or, you know, read an article and it's like, oh, I got to try that. I got to try that. And then it, over time, I sort of forget <laughs> all of the stuff I've collected. And then <laughs> you'll see it in your applications <laughs> list. And you're like, where on earth did that? What is that? I don't even know what it is. Come from. And then, yeah. And, oh, yeah. I must have heard about something in a podcast a long time ago, you know, <laughs> and tried it. Like I was looking yeah. for a tool and I can't believe this isn't more. I must be holding it wrong. Because I'm looking for a tool that when I create a little bit of HTML, it like generates a real time image of what I've what I've created. Oh yeah, because I you think know, um, like VS Code has a built in like a way to do that or a plugin to do that. Yeah, that's um, what I keep hearing. I I need I need to find something to walk me through that because I I keep seeing things that are supposed to work but then when I try yeah. it I don't know maybe I'm just holding it wrong I'm not a developer no. uh, but I do write some you know there's some HTML involved mm -hmm. in making the entries on the websites for the shows you know and I'd like to be able to see that all that stuff's going to work before I yeah put it up there yeah uncompiled stuff is really like I've been watching uh, I have a friend that uh, has been 
picking up development. He's in his late thirties and he wants to start game development. And so, um, it's, it's Vash, uh, Vashinator who on, um, on YouTube, but yeah, he's decided he wants to, to start game development at 38. I think he is. And, uh, wow. so he put out a video of like, why, why do this? Right. And so, you know, mainly it's, he wants to challenge himself and all that. But anyway, the, the point being that I've sort of started down that same path a bunch of times where I'll decide I'm going to learn this or learn that. Uh, the only reason I know HTML and CSS and some JavaScript and PHP is because it's what I use for building websites and stuff like that. So I know enough to be dangerous. Uh, but HTML and CSS are actually a great place to start because you don't need to compile them and you just sort of can play around and it's really easy. You just need a text editor and a browser. And uh, basically, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, I do want to actually learn. So he, he's kind of inspiring me to want to learn again. But if you don't have a project or you don't have a real reason, that's always been my problem. Like, not just with programming, but even with like this, you know, discovering and trying new software. Like if it's just something I don't have a need for, like, I'll play with it a little bit and understand that, yeah, there, there's all this potential, but if I don't have a reason to use it, then, you know, I just, I have a hard time convincing myself to keep pushing forward through some, through those like roadblocks that you hit. So I think anyway, when you get middle aged, you need, you need that goal. You need that stretch goal out in front of you. You know, I, what I'm trying to do well, is your learn time, how to, Your time's important, right? I mean, you get people yeah. that rely on you. You're, they're expecting you to earn an income and right. you only have so much time to sort of say, okay, I'm going to use this to either educate myself and learn a new skill or watch a movie or, you know, take a nap or whatever, you know, things <laughs> you have such a short amount of time to, to spend on stuff that you just want to do. Um, and yeah, it's hard to think I, I a couple years ago had sort of thought, okay, programming of any kind can be a very marketable thing. It's just the amount of time it takes to get proficient with something and actually sort of, you know, be marketable. Right. And so, it, but it, that's a long process. It's not like, oh, in three months time, like I'm going to know enough to really be valuable enough to, you know, be employable. So, uh, you know, there's sort of, it, you know, that it's going to be many years before you're actually probably good enough to earn decent money doing it, right. Or ha have it be a career. Right. Yeah. And just the idea of that type of a time commitment because it's not at just your time. Forty-eight. The, the people yeah, that I'm, are, I'm, you know, it, around you, it's their time too that you're yeah. kind of using to learn this new thing or whatever. Yeah, it was forty-five at the time, and it's just like, man, if it's going to take me like five years, and maybe not five, maybe two or three, but you know, at this age, I don't learn as fast as I did. Um, it takes me a lot longer to sort of like get into the the the. Um, not the mood, but I don't know how to, how to say it. Like, you, like, you know, you got to get your mind into the sort of space of like, okay, I'm going to learn, I'm going to sit here and do this and get myself all sort of situated and ready. And hopefully there's not anything distracting me. And like, I feel like when I was young, I just had so much time and opportunity to sit and do whatever I wanted. If I wasn't actually working I just had so few commitments and also had so much energy. Like I could just for sit in front of a computer for 12 hours at a time and not even think about like, or realize how much time I've spent just being completely engrossed in whatever I was doing. 
you know, not being distracted, not thinking about anything else, just really focused. And the amount I could accomplish in such a short amount of time, I just can't do that anymore. You know, and the idea that I would commit to learning and trying to build a, you know, a new career, it just kind of felt impossible, which is defeatist and really dumb. And I should just say, no, you know, give it a try. But I do need an, an actual project. So I think maybe the way that I'm going to accomplish that is to try to get I, I use WordPress for a lot of the stuff I do just because it's sort of the standard and gives your clients the ability to make changes if they want. And it, it's, it gives you a lot of capabilities just sort of by virtue of what it is. But it's also very monolithic and huge. And the hosting required is really expensive and you know, there's a lot of overhead to it, all the plugins and the maintenance and like, it's just, it's a lot. So I would like to start doing things more sort of bespoke and, you know, building things myself, but the, well, a couple of things, first, the time it takes to do it. Can you get a customer to reimburse you for that amount of time? Yes. If I'm learning it, I expect that I'm not actually going to be able to recover all the time that I'm spending because it's not fair to a customer, I think, to pay me to learn, um, you know, it's what I've done over the years. Like I've learned a lot while being paid to, to learn it, but I also think it's not fair to, you know, if a normal project by someone who's proficient would take eight hours and it's going to take me to double that. Like I can't charge someone 16 hours for, you know, I, I just don't feel right doing that anyway. But I think that that's my opportunity is to try to break away from, ready-made things. And there's also, I think, maybe op opportunity in open source stuff. Like there's a lot of times that a project or a piece of software is almost where I want it. Um, or things like plugins, like a, a system like, you know, we were, I was talking to someone about Joplin. Uh, Joe, Joe wants to use Joplin, but there's currently no add-on that allows you to re require a password to open a specific note, which a lot of note-taking apps provide. You know, maybe there's an initial password to get into the overall application, but then if you go to a specific note, it's it gives you another uh you ask for a, you know, another authentication to view that note. Joplin currently doesn't have that, and I I think about those types of situations and I'm like, well, how complicated is that? Right? And what's what's involved with that? Like what languages would I need to understand and um and so I think I need to just let go of this. Well, I'm too old or I don't have time or whatever. And, and also all the things that I spend time on that maybe aren't as important, like binge watching some kind of <laughs> television show or something, you know, maybe that's time better spent doing that. But I don't know. I haven't quite, haven't quite gotten there yet, but maybe I will. And maybe that'll be good content for me to talk about on here. I, I don't know. Yeah, and anybody wants to hire Eric, show at <laughs> linuxotc.org. <laughs> uh, sounds like he needs a goal. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> he needs one more thing to do. <laughs> well, that's what's crazy. So, you know, what I've understood, come to understand about a lot of, especially freelance type work, like I'm not a developer per se. Uh, I'm a, I call myself a technologist. I understand systems and you know website structures and um 
like there's way more to building a website than just the code that's underneath of it or the, you know, the utilities or the pieces that you put together. It's a lot of interacting with the customer to understand what their business is, what their goals are, what their needs are. Um, you know, how does search engine optimization work? How does visual design work? How, you know, there's so much, so many elements to it. Then the mechanical elements of, of just optimizing the speed of it all and yeah. having the right Hosting, tools in place. The, the backend stuff. Like Redis all of that. and all yeah, that. exactly. And so I understand all of that to a certain depth. I understand the, the DevOps stuff way more in terms of like the servers and the, like that's just my background. And so I run my own servers and all that owns, all that stuff because I'm comfortable doing it and because it's cheaper than me paying for the high-end hosting that I, I need, would need otherwise. Um, but I have also under, come to understand that my value to my customers isn't that I can sit there and code, you know, some piece of, uh, of software. It is that I help them understand their business, that I, you know, help them set the goals that they're looking to set. I, you know, help them target the customer base they're looking for. Like it's almost more business development than it is website development. And because so few businesses actually understand what, what they're doing, <laughs> you know, a lot of businesses just start organically. Like they just had an idea and they kind of tried it and it worked and they just kept doing it and kept doing it. But there was never any real foundational planning involved with it. You know, and I think, I think it's, it's almost kind of an extension of this concept that's always been around where you would go like the main street shopping kind of thing that used to exist and, and, and still does to us lesser degree where you would go to these storefronts and it was clear some of these people had real presentation skill in putting together the storefront and i kind of i kind of think that's a similar skill set when it comes to making these websites and yeah. you know like wordpress will kind of give you a head start with some of that to some degree because they've got all these different templates and things you can use and themes and it really helps you along but you still kind of have to have that um creativity uh to take those tools and put it together in a way that yeah. kind of draws people into a business you know uh, i think that's true of anything i mean how many carpenters have you seen build something unbelievable with like a hammer and like the most yeah. basic tools and then you get some tryhard who's got all the like expensive gear and you know cordless this and all the like and they can't they're not even close because they just don't have the same skill set or they don't have the same depth of knowledge or whatever so it's tools are one thing they're important they need to be you know but the the exercise of those or the the application of them is really where you know and and I feel like that's I have this this I've always had this difficulty and this isn't like a, a therapy session or something but I've always had this difficulty of valuing my expertise because things that seem trivial to me I've come to understand by talking to other people like the, all of the dumb little you know factual things that I understand and know about technology I feel like I don't know anything like in the grand scheme of things, there are people that know so much more than me in every possible aspect of, of anything that I do that I always have this like, um, what do they call it? The not pretender, but imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Gosh. I've always felt that way. I felt that way in my main career. I feel that way in my my 
business now. I feel that way when I talk about things on a podcast. Oh, the podcast, <laughs> I, I'm always questioning. Because you know? I went to no school for any of this stuff. I know exactly what imposter syndrome is. And yeah. when I started with Mentcast, I, the only thing that kept going through my head is, who do you think you are? And you <laughs> you literally have to force yourself past that and just, well, if nothing else, I'm going to fake it till I make it. And yeah, you get a lot of things wrong, you know, but you know, you eventually you know you you realize okay i am smart enough to at least add something to the conversation and then you, you just kind of yeah. build on that and and imposter syndrome is just kind of one of those things that you chip away at it's 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 a terrible barrier it's it's a yeah it 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 is something that a person can feel for real and yeah. it does get in the way but you can't you can't let it stop you completely well, anyway. the, you know, what I've come to understand is that so much of this like knowledge that I have in my head is actually really valuable and I just need to find the best application for it and yeah. get over that imposter syndrome. And, uh, I don't know, the dream would be finding some job or way to earn income within Linux. I've never been able to do that. I always look at people that have managed to do it and think, Man, that's that to me would be like making it right to be somehow just I don't care what it would be like from an IT perspective or consultative perspective or like it just doesn't matter. Like I think it would be so cool to just have, you know, an involvement in open source and then be able to make that into a, a career uh, to where you can actually earn a decent wage doing it make a living making one of these things that people like us talk about on these yeah on these yeah, shows exactly you know? yeah. well we better and i think development kind of gets me into that so yes this uh, was quite a grab bag <laughs> it was but you know that's kind of who and what we are so yeah every time yeah. i think you know a show eh, it's just gonna be two of us i've gotten to the point where i i don't worry about it anymore because joe and i did just the two of us, we did the main, Mintcast, yeah. and that was fine. And, yeah, it was. It was. And it ended, it ended up being long enough to split into two shows, and this is over an hour now, so yeah. Yeah. I don't even worry about it anymore. Anyway, yeah. nope. uh, get in touch. Let us know what you think. Uh, show at linuxotc.org. We're on uh, Discord. We're on Mastodon. There'll be a, there'll be a uh, notification on Mastodon when the show releases. Um, I don't know. Email and the website's probably the quickest way to get to us. Um, anyway, we'll be back in two weeks, I guess. That'll be. It'll still be the holidays. If not, we'll let you know. But, yeah. Uh, until Someone then, will be back. <laughs> somebody will be here. Somebody will be doing something. That's right. <laughs> Whether or not it's worth listening to, that's well. Ah, uh, come on. <laughs> Uh, anyway, see you then. Until then, I've been Bill. And I have been Eric. See you later, folks.